This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Last year, as Fidel Castro turned 80, our guest today, British Member of Parliament, George Galloway published the Fidel Castro Handbook, a look at the Cuban leader's life from childhood through his dramatic conquest of power and his leadership of Cuba over 47 years. Galloway is currently the Respect Member of Parliament for Bethnal Green and Bow. He is perhaps best known for his vigorous campaign to overturn economic sanctions against Iraq and his dressing down of U.S. Senator Norm Coleman on a panel investigating alleged corruption in the U.N. Oil for Food program. George Galloway, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for the opportunity. How are you doing today? Everything all right? I'm very well. I've just been voting in the mother of all parliaments, the scene of many crimes here Uh in the House of Commons in London. Did you happen to listen to the phone conversation between Castro and Chavez? Yes, I have heard it, and it greatly uh, encouraged me. The uh, clarity of his response, the energy which he showed considering how seriously he's been ill, were all uh, signed that the would-be dancers in the streets down in Miami, Florida, may have to wait a little uh, before they can have their party. (laughs) What struck you the most about that conversation? Was there any particular thing that Castro said or uh, Chavez? Well, you know, what's what's interesting is the fact that the president of a major country in the world has a radio phone-in program for a start. Uh, that's not something that George Bush or Tony Blair would be able to do because the switchboard would be jammed with hostile callers. Well, in the case of and, George uh, Bush, I don't think he could pull it off. Well, I'm not sure that talent. George Bush can tie his shoelaces, yeah. perhaps I shouldn't go there. Yeah. No, he can barely pull it off with a friendly audience. Can you imagine an un- unfiltered that's audience? Right. Yeah. That's right. No, it was, uh, it was the sign that uh, Fidel is proactive, he's, he's making calls, he's uh, back studying, as he said, he's a student again at the age of... 80. As Mark Twain once said, reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Well, it's true that now that uh, reports of Fidel Castro's demise have been greatly exaggerated, too. How did you come about getting involved in this book? What what was the process there? Well, I've been involved uh, in solidarity with Cuba for most of my life, in fact. Since the late 1960s, I'm giving away my age, Hmm. uh, I've been uh, partisan for the Cuban Revolution. Like, uh, I suppose, hundreds of millions of people around the world, I had the images of Che Guevara and Fidel Castro on my on my wall as a teenager. I was very lucky in the mid-1980s to meet Fidel for the first time, to spend many, many hours, more hours than any other British figure has ever spent with him, more than most foreigners uh, in the world have spent with him. So for, for 20 years I've been meeting Fidel when I go to Havana. Anyone who's ever done so knows what a mesmerizing experience that is. Mm-hmm. I asked him if I could get access to his personal photo albums, his, uh, his family albums. And the result is a book, which I'm, I'm very proud of the words in the book, but I'm just as proud of the pictures, because uh-huh. half of these pictures have never seen, been seen before. Some right. of them are absolutely stunning, I think. The picture of Fidel with Malcolm X, for example, yep. which illustrates an amazing story about when Malcolm gave harbor to Che Guevara and Fidel Castro down in Harlem 
after they'd been toughed out of their Manhattan hotel, how Malcolm organized a picnic in Central Park. Wouldn't you have liked to have had a video yeah, of yeah. that particular <laughs> yeah. picnic? Uh, uh, and so on. I went there in May to get access to these photographs, and I spent seven hours live on TV with Fidel at a round table, seven hours from 5 p.m. till midnight on live, unscripted television. And we only stopped because the cameraman fell asleep and fell (laughs) off his rostrum. Uh, And in that seven hours, Fidel didn't even go to the bathroom. I'm not making that up. He didn't even slip away for a leak. (laughs) Uh, And he didn't take a sip of water in all that time. This man is uh, a man like no other I've ever met. He's the most interesting and the most interested person that I've ever met by a country mile. Now, you've called him one of the greatest men of the 20th century. Why would you say that? If you measured his greatness just by the achievements in Cuba alone, you would say that. I mean, for example, infant mortality uh, of Cuban children is lower than it is in the United States, the richest country in the world. Life expectancy in Cuba is longer than it is in the United States. Cuba has a healthcare system that's not only comparable to Sweden or Denmark, never mind any, any de- other developed country, not only is it much better than the United States, where 70 million people don't even have health care insurance, but Cuba is exporting thousands of doctors to poor countries all around the world as a form of aid. In the earthquake in, uh, in Kashmir, in Pakistan, uh, when international uh, agencies arrived there, they were astounded to find 5,000 Cuban doctors already there who stayed a year longer than everyone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, just on the achievements inside Cuba and with Cuban resources, uh, his greatness is, is guaranteed. But when you add into the mix the fact that Nelson Mandela, on his release from 27 years in the dungeons of apartheid, who could have gone anywhere in the world, everyone in the world was asking him to make their country the place he visited first. He got on the plane and flew directly to Havana. Mm-hmm. He stood with Fidel arm in arm, he declared to a million people, see how far we slaves have come. Because he recognized the role that Cuba played in the defeat of apartheid thousands of miles away in South Africa at a time when your country and mine were actually supporting apartheid. So Cuba's role in the international level, its sporting, its cultural, its tourism potential, Cuba's become really the coolest country in the world. Millions of people from around the world have visited it, and almost all of them have come back singing its praises. So the leader deserves the credit for that. We're speaking with George Galloway. The book is the Fidel Castro Handbook. Has Castro always been a brilliant man, or was, was there a point in time where he saw his calling and he, and he stepped forward? He was always exceptional. Um, he was exceptionally tall, exceptionally yeah. handsome. I always say that one of the benefits for the Cuban Revolution is how handsome their leaders were. If their leaders had looked like Khrushchev, <laughs> uh, the Cuban Revolution might never have caught on. But, uh, he was always an outstanding student. He was an outstanding athlete. There's pictures of him there playing baseball, yes. uh, playing golf, and so on. He's always been an outstanding figure since his childhood. And by the way, he was born into a family of the oligarchy. He could have lived a life of luxury, Uh, like the other oligarchs, but he decided very early on that Cuban independence and freedom, and that's all he was fighting for, actually. You know, I had an interview with another U.S. station earlier today. They said that, uh, well, the United States broke off relations with Cuba after they cozied up to the Soviet Union. Uh, But in fact, the events were entirely the other way around. The United States broke off relations with Cuba and began blockading it 
because the bordello owners and the casino owners who used to rule Cuba and who now live in Miami, Florida, were disinherited of their property, which was turned into schools and clinics and hospitals for the mass of the Cuban people. It was only then that any relationship between Cuba and the Soviet Union took place. What would you consider to be his greatest achievement? Was it standing up to the U.S.? Was it uh, the revolution itself? What was his greatest achievement? It's not uh, a very scientific point to make that that without an individual, uh, great events would not have happened. Mm -hmm. But I I honestly feel that if it were not for Fidel Castro, the Cuban Revolution, whilst it might have still occurred, would have been uh, entirely different in character and outcome and probably wouldn't have lasted, and there would have had to be several Cuban revolutions. I think that the, the leadership qualities of Fidel, which anyone who's ever met him recognizes in an instant, have played a, a vital part. So his personal touch, his personal qualities, which are really exceptional, I assure you, not twice in a thousand years does a country produce a leader like Fidel. Here we are now in his 81st year. Yes. If he arrived in any capital in the world, hundreds of thousands of people would turn out to greet him. If George Bush arrived in any capital in the world, the, the government would tell him, please don't come. And if he did come, he'd have to be surrounded by thousands of policemen. I was going to say, there would be thousands of people to greet him in any capital right now, but it might not be for all the right reasons. <laughs> what kind of an impact did the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis have on him and the leadership uh, within, uh, within Cuba? Well, um, I report in the book that the Cuban leadership were furious at Khrushchev's deal with Kennedy. On this one, I'm... I'm with Khrushchev. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that both Khrushchev and Kennedy saved the world from, uh, frankly, from, fr- from ceasing to exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there was no question of a tactical nuclear exchange that close to the United States mainland that would have been a thermonuclear war. And humanity may well have perished. And the only thing alive today would be the, the viruses that deep in the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's pretty serious stuff. Cuba wanted to be defended because it had been invaded Mm -hmm. by the United States at the Bay of Pigs. Mm -hmm. And 10 U.S. presidents have spent hundreds of millions of dollars, probably billions actually, uh, subverting Cuba in every imaginable way. 468 assassination attempts, uh, ranging from the serious to the ridiculous, have been mounted from Florida by terrorists being harbored by U.S. governments to be paid for by the U.S. governments. And uh, Cuba had every right to want to defend itself from foreign invasion. Uh, Anyway, all's well that ends well. The Cuban Mm -hmm. Missile Crisis ended satisfactorily. The United States gave a guarantee that it would not invade Cuba. I hope that that's not a guarantee that anyone's dreaming of setting aside. Because if you think the problems in Iraq are bad, and if Afghanistan are bad... Uh, Trust me, an invasion of Cuba would be the biggest mistake the United States ever made. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with George Galloway. The book is the Fidel Castro Handbook. What do you think will become of Cuba after Castro? I just read a few days ago where where we're considering using part of Guantanamo for some of the refugees that we predict will be coming or would have come into this country. Uh, What what does the future hold for Cuba? Well, in a sense, we already know the answer to that, because uh, since the summer of last year, uh, Fidel has not been running the country, and everything has gone very smoothly. A transition to effectively a collective leadership has already taken place. I don't think even if Fidel gets much better than he is today that that's going to be reversed. And the, the answer is Cuba is working normal, business as usual. The economy in Cuba is leaping forward. 
It has higher growth rates than almost any other country in the world in the last four years. By the grace of God, it's also now discovered oil. It has allies throughout Latin America where once it was isolated. In fact, the only way to get elected in Latin America today is to say that you are a friend of Fidel and an opponent of George Bush, yeah. uh, except where they cheat and rig the election in, in uh, countries like uh, Mexico and, uh, and Peru. Colombia is the only reliable ally the United States any longer has in the whole of Latin America, whilst Cuba's influence is now greater than it's ever been. So I think that Cuba's future is assured. I think a collective leadership on his demise will take power. Uh, and ultimately, the primus inter pares uh, of those will probably be the foreign minister, the youngest foreign minister in the world, 35 years old, uh, Felipe Perez, uh, who was once Fidel's political secretary. I know him well. And I think that in the, you know, the next uh, 30 years, he'll be the leading figure in Cuba. How did the relationship between Hugo Chavez and uh, Fidel Castro develop? Well, both of them are essentially the same kind of leaders in that they're not so much east as, as south, as uh, someone once said. Neither of them is a, a communist uh, in their intent. Fidel began uh, to liberate the country from North American domination in the way that his predecessors had fought to throw off the yoke of Spanish colonialism. And if the United States had been sensible, they would have dealt with the Cuban leadership on that basis, and we would not be having this conversation now. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of Venezuela. What does Hugo Chavez want to do except improve the lot of the poor masses in Venezuela who have benefited hardly at all from decades of gigantic oil earnings by the country? Uh, anyone who's been to Caracas and seen the contrast between the barrios, the slums of Caracas, and the way that the rich people live, would know that uh, a government committed to redistributing wealth in such a country is long overdue. And if the United States had dealt with that on that basis, then there would be no tension between the two countries. The U.S. has to accept something. Nobody wants to be anybody's backyard. That's a very insulting idea. The backyard is where you put the trash, and nobody will admit to being the trash yard. Nobody will accept it. These countries are their own front yards, not the U.S.'s backyards. And if the U.S. would deal with other countries on the basis of mutuality, mutual respect, and cooperation, then there would be far less trouble in the world than there currently is. Cuba and Fidel Castro, though, continue to be demonized by the United States. Is there a, a message you think it would be successful to take to the American people? Do you have a message for them that could turn them around or change their mind a bit on this? Well, I think they should stop being led by the vested interests, who are small in number but great in wealth and apparently disproportionate in their political influence. You'll recall that when Monica Lewinsky was seeing to President Clinton once, he had to break off, or in fact he didn't entirely break off, uh, in order to speak to one of these Cuban emigres, because he was a major donor of the Democratic Party. And that man's brother is a major donor of the Republican Party. Yeah. And the votes of the emigre community in Florida and New Jersey have disproportionately affected United States policy. Al Gore, if he'd been elected, was pledged to normalize relations uh, with Cuba. That would have been the sensible policy to follow, but as in so many other things, we've paid a high price for the fact that the Democratic election in the United States was stolen from Al Gore and handed to George W. Bush. 
Let's talk about getting intimate with Castro. What's the best time you've ever had with him outside of uh, debating or talking about state affairs? Did you ever uh, smoke play, a few cigars uh, and know, play hang ball out. with him? Have yeah, a drink? I, I, I'm a cigar smoker, but Fidel is not. He gave up nearly 30 years ago. That's something that not many people realize. Yeah. And in fact, he constantly orders me to stop smoking Havana cigars. <laughs> he says we need you as a, as a fighter rather than as a consumer of our product. Um, but I do. Uh, I spend... Uh, long, long hours with him at his office, usually through the night, because he works uh, He works through the night, or used to, of course. Yeah. We, we talk about everything. I remember once we were sitting watching CNN, and a picture came on the screen of President Clinton <laughs> out jogging in a Malcolm X baseball cap. <laughs> and uh, Fidel had to double-take, triple-take, quadruple-take. Yeah. And he said to me, if you'd told me 40 years ago that the day would come when a U.S. president would be out jogging in a Malcolm X baseball cap, I'd have said you were insane. And that's the time that he told me this remarkable story about the time he spent with Malcolm in New York in 1960. This man is a walking history book, yeah? yeah. He's, been, he's been at the top in politics, revolutionary politics, at the center of great international events since he was 34 years old, and he's now 80. He knows everybody. He's seen everyone come and go. He's seen 10 U.S. presidents come and go all of whom have been dedicated to bringing him down. By the way, judging by his conversation with Chavez, Fidel will still be standing when George W. Bush leaves office too. I remember reading not too long ago a human rights report that said that the sustained effort to assassinate Fidel Castro was the longest state-sponsored terrorism campaign in the history of the world. That's absolutely right. And in Florida, there are thousands of anti-Castro terrorists being harbored in the, in the land which says it's leading a war on terror. And uh, the extradition of people who blew up civilian airliners, killing scores of people, is resisted by the United States government, which gives sanctuary to and allows to flourish a culture of assassination and bombing. You know, people uh, have set out from Florida to bomb hotel lobbies in uh, Cuba to try and disrupt the tourist industry bombs on beaches, in beach cafes, assassination, subversion of all kinds. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that in the land of the free, the home of the brave, that such gangsters, such uh, people that I describe as the former bordello owners and casino owners, who were disinherited by the Cuban Revolution, should be allowed to operate in this way. It's, uh, it would never be tolerated in any other uh, country. If it were in another country, the United States would be threatening to invade. Mm-hmm. We're running out of time here. I have one last question for you, which is, given that the British are beginning their final descent, if you will, out of Iraq, what do you see the state of Iraq, and how does this reflect on the uh, the, the eventual outcome of Iraq with the uh, British uh, withdrawal? Well, I, I'm afraid our soldiers are merely being removed from the frying pan uh, uh, in order to be sent to the fire, an even hotter fire, in the Afghan mountains of Helmand province. Mm where three British armies in the last 150 years have been destroyed and where thousands of uh, British grenadiers have left their bones, and many will do so again. Uh, But, of course, the decision four years ago nearly by Bush and Blair to illegally invade and occupy a Muslim country and set fire to half the world as a result uh, will go down as one of the the most grotesque errors, the most... uh, criminal acts that any leaders of any democratic countries have ever carried out. Mm. I can't tell you, as someone who knows Iraq very well, 
I can't tell you where it will all end. One thing's for sure, we've now gone down a slope which is going to be very difficult to clamber back up. George Galloway, the book is Fidel Castro Handbook. Thank you for, for being here on Weekly Signals. It's been excellent. Thanks for the opportunity. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. Weekly Signals.